Okay, uh, let's look at this, the second commandment. It's actually the second longest commandment of the ten. And it also appears to include, and we'll look at this in a minute, a, a disturbing threat or a disturbing warning, as, as well as a great promise. So it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I... The Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. And then this is how the commandment uh, continues in Exodus 20. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so it's obvious that idolatry is a, it's a serious issue. And it's no surprise to discover that in various forms, this commandment reappears in the Bible more than any other commandment. The warnings against idolatry are extensive throughout Scripture. And whenever God gave this commandment to Moses, idols were common. In fact, and this is such a sad sort of discovery or reflection of Israelite worship, as Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, Aaron and the people were at the bottom of the mountain, melting down their earrings and making them into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, saying to each other, these are your gods. And so it's no wonder whenever Moses returned and discovered this, that he lost it and he smashed the stone tablets into pieces on the ground. And he actually had to persuade God to hold fire. God was so angry as a result of this, that he said he was going to destroy the people. But Moses somehow talked God down. And you can read the story in in Exodus 32. And making and worshipping idols was a major problem. And so God categorically and unambiguously said, listen, don't make them and don't worship them. And he goes on to explain why. And we'll get there in in a moment. But how does this connect to us? How does this relate to me? Because I doubt if any of us have an idol like this, like a golden calf at home, which we bow down to or or worship. So although this was highly relevant to Moses and to Aaron and to the Israelites thousands of years ago, how does it apply to us in a 21st century context? Now, in a moment... uh, I am going to say something about religious artwork, about paintings and images and stained glass windows and crosses, because there is a long history of interpretation and controversy regarding graven images, that you shall not make for yourself a graven image, as the King James Version puts it. And therefore, there has been a lot of interpretation as to what is a graven image. And also this whole idea of, is it right to have visual depictions of God and Jesus. I said I am going to say something in a moment. I intend to say something, but I may take cold feet, uh, depending how this goes. But before I do that, I think we need to recognize and accept that an idol is, is something, or it's anything that becomes a substitute focus for our worship. You'll know that we were created to worship. We were created to worship God. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were created 
to worship God. But if God is not at the center of our worship, something else inevitably will take his place. And for Aaron, for the Israelites, their idol was this golden calf that was worshipped as their God. It became the substitute focus for their worship. But what is the substitute focus for our worship in our culture? What are some of the things that take God's rightful place? And, And one of the little video presentations earlier raised some of those issues. Is it money? Is it possessions? Is it physical beauty? Is it our image? Is it power? Is it careers? Is it sex? Is it relationships? Is it music? Is it sport? Is it fame? Idolatry occurs whenever any of those things or anything else or any values or any ideas are placed higher than God. It is actually very hard to give a simple definition of an idol. This is one suggestion. But in his little book, and I know some of you have read this, the little book 10, J. John expresses it like this. He says, here are four statements. Here are four statements that a Christian could say, should say. God gives purpose, meaning, and fulfillment to my life. God is the focal point around which my existence hangs. God governs or dictates the way that I act. I desire more of God. Well, an idol is anything that you put in the place of God in those statements. My image or my career is what gives me purpose and meaning and fulfillment. Music is the focal point around which my existence hangs. Money governs the way that I act. I desire more power. And the thing is that none of those things are wrong or are evil in and of themselves. But whenever they dictate our lives, whenever they become the focus of our lives and the substitute focus of our worship, then they become idols of our making. And they become objects of our misplaced affection. And there is a real challenge in that. Because how, how do you discern what is an idol what is the focus of your worship how do you actually discern that as you observe other people and again we'll come back to this a little later as you observe their lives as you listen to what they say how do you determine what is the focus of their worship and how do people determine what is the focus of your worship by the way you live your life Is it clear that it's God, or is it apparent that it's something else? But there is another dimension to this commandment, uh, maybe even a more accurate understanding and reflection of it, and it's true meaning for us that I want us to consider, because this commandment does prohibit the making and the worshipping of false images. But another major form of idolatry today is the false images of God that we create. The false images of God that we actually carry around or lots of people carry around in their minds. Idolatry includes the creation of a distorted image of God. A non-biblical image. You see, God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself to us in his word. He's revealed himself to us in his name, as we thought about last week. And ultimately, he's revealed himself to us in Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. 
And therefore, it is so important that we, we worship him as he has revealed himself to us and not according to our imagination. This is absolutely critical. And I believe this is where this commandment, in a sense, particularly applies to so many of us today. Because people today have different images of God that they have allowed to replace the real thing. So some people see God as some sort of old man upstairs, a kindly sort of old grandfather figure, a celestial Santa Claus in the sky. Others see God as some cosmic moral monitor, a sort of type of policeman who's just waiting for you to step out of line and then he's going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And and that's the image that some people carry around of God. A false image, a distorted image, a non-biblical image. And some people have allowed the image of their earthly father to mess with and interfere with the worship of their heavenly father. And J.B. Phillips, in his classic little book, Your God is Too Small, he, he deals with a number of false images that we have of God, including this idea of God as, as we compare God to our earthly father. And he actually calls this the parental hangover. I just want to quote something from his book. The early conception of God is almost invariably founded upon the child's idea of his father. If he or she is lucky enough to have a good father, this is all to the good, provided, of course, that the conception of God grows with the rest of his personality. But if the child is afraid, or or worse still, afraid and feeling guilty because he or she is afraid of his own father, their chances are that his father in heaven will appear to him or her as a fearful being. Again, if he or she is lucky... They will outgrow this conception and indeed differentiate between his early fearful idea and their later mature conception. But many are not able to outgrow the sense of guilt and fear. And in adult years, they are still obsessed with it, although it has nothing to do with the real and living God. It is nothing more than a parental hangover. And none of those images that I've mentioned is sort of grandfather figure, moral monitor, like our earthly father in that sense, are true images, are totally true images. They are, in a sense, false images. They could even be described as idols that seek to contain God within the limits of our imagination. And as we explore this a little further, as I say, there may be people who imagine God to be like this, but another aspect of a false image of God occurs whenever we try to contain God in a box. And that's why the, the, the documentary film, God in the Box, that I, that I showed earlier, is fascinating. It's a fascinating and a revealing uh, portrayal of how people see or think of God. And the four journalists who commissioned and made the film, they set out, if you read the blurb about it, they set out on an expedition of sorts, searching. And I honestly think it comes across in a little bit, we were genuinely searching for the meaning of God. And they decided to do it by exploring, well, what does God look like to ordinary, everyday people? And so they they constructed this curious box and they took it to iconic street corners and small towns right across America. And inside the box actually was a stool, a drawing table, a sketch pad, pencils, microphones, and cameras to record all the action. And people were invited to step inside and just answer two fundamental questions. 
What does God mean to you? And what does God look like to you? And so some people spoke. And some people spoke and vented their feelings. Others drew. But, and I'm now quoting from one review, it's an intimate peek inside our feelings, which is all we have got according to this review, since it's impossible to come by facts about God. And then with the help of an engaging collection of theologians, scholars, and an archaeologist, we analyze the answers, we analyze the drawings. Why do we have these images? Why do we have these ideas in our heads? Is this the image that I carry around? Is this really God? This expedition leads us down an evocative trail from our 21st century perspectives to the roots of our inspirations. One cannot help, they say, but be transported inside the box. And once inside, as the filmmaker finds out, one cannot help being transformed by the experience. God in the box offers you a unique window to examine the views of others and a mirror to examine your own. And I must admit, as I've read that and as I've watched some of these little trailers, I've been intrigued by it. And, and I, I would love to see the film. I don't think it has gone in general release here as yet. But although it is interesting, and it is insightful to discover what people today think of God or imagine what God is like, the minute that you try to box him, the minute you try to describe God or base our understanding of God on just that R, our limited understanding, rather than who God is actually as revealed in God's word and in Jesus. The minute you do that, I want to suggest is the minute that you risk breaking the second commandment. You have created, or you have the potential of creating, a false image, an idol. Now, it would be easy as Christians or as a church to look at something like that and to listen to what people say and to look at what people draw And to knock it. To ridicule the false images of God that people today carry around in their heads. But most of us would probably accept that even within, not so much the church, but within churches, there is a real tendency to box God. To actually try contain God. Which creates a false image. Again, in J.B. Phillips' book, He talks about how different denominations can sometimes imply that they have God in a box. They have discovered what God is like. And he writes this, What sticks in the non-Christian throat about the Christianity of the churches is not merely their differences in denominations, but it's the spirit of churchiness which seems to pervade them all. They seem to have captured and tamed and trained to their own liking something God that is really far too big ever to be forced into little man-made boxes with neat labels upon them. The thoughtful man outside the church is not offended so much by the differences of denominations. To him, in his happy ignorance, these are merely the normal psychological variations of human taste and temperament being expressed in the religious sphere. What he cannot stomach is the exclusive claim made by each to be the right one. No denomination has a monopoly of God's grace. No denomination has the exclusive recipe for producing Christian character. 
And it is quite plain to the disinterested observer that the real God takes no notice, whatever, of our boxes. Do you agree? Do you disagree? But the one thing I think we have to say is we cannot and must not box God. Of course, we have to pursue an appreciation of God based on how God has revealed himself to us. But the moment that we imply that we have God sussed, that we have God worked out, that we have God captured, we risk promoting a false image. Stuart Briscoe provocatively puts it like this, all our idolatry attempts to whittle God down, to suit him to our way of doing things, to fit him in a comfortable pattern that does not harm our own ideas or challenge our way of thinking. And by the time we have finished, we have denied God his power, we have muddied or defaced his image, and have left ourselves with pitiful, empty lives that benefit neither him nor us. Now, it's at this point that I was going to say something about uh, graven images. And I am going to go for it. Uh, and I realize that this, this is an issue that deserves and demands more than, more, far more than a few comments, certainly from me and in a context like this, and I am no expert on this. But as I said earlier, there is, a, there is a history, a long history of interpretation and reinterpretation of what exactly is a graven image What is the idol exactly that this commandment refers to? And so for some people, the Eastern Orthodox churches have always made use of icons, which some people see as idols, and therefore these are the sort of things that this commandment explicitly forbids. Roman Catholic churches are often, although not always, characterized by elaborate artwork and images and pictures and windows. And so some people say those are graven images. During the Reformation, some of the reformers felt that far too many churches were filled with such elaborate artwork that was bought at great expense that the worship of God was being lost and that the sanctuary and images were becoming idols and so lots of religious art was thrown out and lots of stained glass windows were replaced during the time of the Reformation. And then the Puritans insisted there should be no images of at all. And so many of us, and, and I include myself in this, many of us grew up in very plain churches where there wasn't even a cross on display. And I know that there are different perspectives, but I honestly believe that the key parts of this commandment are the word idols and the phrase, you shall not bow down and worship them. Because for me, there there is nothing wrong, and I'll stick my neck out, There is nothing wrong with religious symbols or artwork just by or in and of themselves. I mean, for example, if you think about the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, were they not full of religious artwork and images? The problem occurs whenever the symbol becomes the substitute. Whenever the image or the artwork becomes actually an object of our worship. Whenever the created is worshipped rather than the creator. And a classic example of this actually occurs in the Old Testament. Numbers 21, God commanded, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent. And I want you to make it in the wilderness. And I want it to be a reminder of God's power over the serpents. And also, as some would say, as a prefiguring 
some how some people have seen this as a prefiguring of Christ on the cross, and there is a reference to that later on. But in 2 Kings 18, you discover that King Hezekiah has to break the bronze snake into pieces. Why? Because the people had started to burn incense to it. They had started to worship it as an idol. And I realize that today, certain people can do that with certain religious images and artworks and objects. But for other people, these can be aids to worship. But I also understand that for other people, and you may be here and you say, you find these a complete distraction to your worship. But to say that all creation of all these things is a direct breach of the second commandment, I think, is going too far. You can challenge me on that one later. But let me get back on track. And let me mention another form of idolatry today before we consider why it's so important we obey this command. In the New Testament, we actually discover that greed and covetousness falls under the radar of this commandment. Put to death, Paul says, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. For this you can be sure, no, and this is strong, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Greed and covetousness is this immoderate, this insatiable desire, I want more, I want more, I want to have more of that, or I want to have what other people have, what belong to other people. And the moment you go down that line, the moment you pursue more and more and more and you become greedy and you become covetous, is the moment that those things risk taking God's place in your life. And therefore, that is why Paul says, listen, this is idolatry. Beware of greed and covetousness. And as I've said before, these Ten Commandments actually do connect together. And so we see here how a violation of the tenth is actually a violation of the second. But why should we obey these commands, or this command in particular? Well, actually, Exodus 20 and this command gives us three reasons why it is so important that we obey this. And the first is that God is a jealous God. And for some people, again, this this is something that they find really hard to understand. Because jealousy, we immediately think, is something that's wrong. But the Bible makes it really clear God is a jealous God. And he longs for total loyalty from his people. In fact, Exodus 34 says, God's name is jealous. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And so God deserves, God demands that he's number one, right at the center of our lives. God's is a holy jealousy. It's a righteous jealousy. It's just exactly the same as that of a husband for his spouse, which is why in Ezekiel 23 we read, they have committed adultery with their idols. Because you see, a good husband will never stand by while his wife is unfaithful. Her love belongs to him. And in the same way, God cannot turn a blind eye. God cannot look the other way when we worship an idol, when we worship a false image of him rather than God himself. And the second reason for getting this right does relate to this disturbing threat or warning that's referred to in this command, where it says that God punishes the children, it would seem, of idolaters to the third and fourth generation. And, and I, don't, I don't know how you understand that part of the commandment. 
It, it has, in a sense, always troubled me. But the influence of false wor- worship and idolatry, it seems, is passed down from generation to generation. You see, our kids absorb our values. Values are absorbed rather than taught. And idolatry enters a family's spiritual bloodstream, so to speak, and therefore what we worship really does matter. And it's not, I don't, at least I don't believe it, I don't believe that kids inherit the guilt of our sin, but they do inherit the consequences of our wrong choices. And therefore, if we worship idols, whatever those idols may be, then as our kids watch us, they note what is important to us and they can absorb those values into their lives. The flip side of this, why we obey this, is in light of this incredible promise. Because according to verse 6, God shows love to a thousand generations. I think it's really interesting to note the difference. It's in the third and fourth generation, but he promises to show love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So there's three reasons why. But I do want to end on a, on a positive note before we just look at some questions for reflection. Because this commandment, as I said, right at the very beginning does deal with worship. It deals with misplaced worship. And we are created to worship God. And we're created to worship God alone. But how do you actually do that? You know, what, what does that look like? Well, well, Jesus told us. Jesus told us exactly the type of worshipers that his father is looking for. It's those who worship in spirit or in the spirit and in truth. And for me, that means we have got to worship God for who he is as revealed to us in here and as revealed to us in his attributes. So we worship God for his love, for his grace, for his mercy, for his holiness, for his power. And we worship God according to, if you like, his commands. So we worship in prayer. We worship in praise. We worship in thanksgiving. We worship in singing, in reading scripture, in preaching and hearing God's word taught. We worship in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. In fact, we worship in our giving. We worship in our serving. We worship him in all we do. That's for me what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And so the issue always is whenever it comes to services like this and moments like this is to examine my own heart and say, God, have I worshipped you tonight in spirit and in truth? And ultimately to worship God through Jesus, who I said earlier, is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of God's glory, glory and the exact representation of his being. It's one of those moments. (laughs) Just let it ring, whosoever it belongs to. You know, whenever we worship God like that, in spirit and in truth, we avoid conjuring up false images. And actually, whenever you worship in spirit and in truth, you avoid worshiping a distorted image of God. And whenever you worship in spirit and truth, you do not box the unboxable. And we avoid allowing any other thing, even if it is a piece of religious art, to become a substitute focus for our worship. And so for me, to discover and to pursue what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth is actually what protects us from idolatry. And so just four questions 
for silent reflection before we, we sing a couple of songs to finish. Is there anything or anyone in your life that is taken or is taking God's place? In a moment, we're going to sing an old hymn. Oh, for a closer walk with God. One of the verses says this, The dearest idol I have known, and they tend to be dear to us, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. So is there anything in your life that is that has taken or has taken God's place? Are you carrying around any false images of God that need to be addressed, that need to be challenged? And as your kids, for those that's relevant to you, or others observe your life, what or who do they see as the focus of your worship? And how does worship in spirit and in truth protect you against idolatry?